Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Mary Mattingly. Mary Mattingly is a visual artist who creates sculptural ecosystems in urban spaces. She's founder of a floating food forest on a barge in New York City called Swale, and recently transformed a military trailer into a social space at the Museum of Modern Art's Kalman Center. In 2015, she completed a two-part sculpture for the International Havana Biennial with the Museo Nacional de Belles Artes de la Habana and installed a bridge underwater in Des Moines called Wading Bridge. A selection of her previous work includes the Water Pod Project, a barge-based public space and self-sufficient habitat that hosted over 200,000 visitors in New York, Own It, a project in which she meticulously cataloged her possessions, including their far-flung and often troubling origins, before binding them together into large sculptures, and wearable homes in which she designed garments that could also serve as dwellings. Her work has been exhibited at the International Center of Photography, the Seoul Art Center, the Brooklyn Museum, the New York Public Library, the Cordova Museum and Sculpture Park, and the Palais de Tokyo, and has been featured in Art in America, Art Forum, the New York Times, the Village Voice, and more. Mary Mattingly, welcome to Precipice. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, so before we get started talking about what you're currently working on, um, this has been a big and difficult week. And because we want this show to really be talking about what's actually happening for people in the world, I want to start there. So, so just this week you experienced a loss of one of your pieces, Wetlands. (sighs) Uh, or at the very least, it's been significantly altered. It was a houseboat designed to look like a half-sunken house to raise awareness of climate change. And just a few days ago, heavy storms left it actually half-sunken in the river where it was docked. And this was certainly due to weather and may also have been in part due to human error. So as the consequences of how we've treated the world begin to show up, and as we work together to dream our way into other possible futures, it seems like these moments are likely to happen to all of us. We dream up some possibility, we work to bring it to fruition with others, and sometimes our love and our commitment and our work may not be enough to keep it from getting swept away, whether by a storm or by laws antagonistic to what we're doing, or by financial obstacles, or by imperfect or frayed human relationships. 
and I guess I'm wondering how how do we proceed knowing that these losses are likely part of proceeding and and when the moments come how do we greet them um that's a great question I think you know today I was it I was challenged by um, the idea of coming on to your show and really wanted to stay in bed as for as long as I could and um, think about the I think get into the loss I think I at some point during the day realized that it doesn't make sense to save the project even though uh, we pulled it up and it wasn't in as uh, bad shape as we had expected but it had been sitting underwater for a few days and the amount of repair that it would take to um, to get it uh, working again was it didn't really make um, it didn't make sense for a few different reasons uh, one of them being the I guess the biggest reason being the the time that we had to find a, qu- a quick home for it to be repaired in um, and the necessity of getting it out of where it was immediately um, and yeah so I think it's it, it reminded me that a lot of what motivates a lot of our work as um, as people who are making things, I think, or, or especially maybe things that have to do with challenges that we're facing all around us, may could start with anger. So I think, you know, that's what I felt a lot of for the past few days is the the anger that you know this potentially didn't need to happen, um, and and the anger about the dominant culture's constant destruction of life and that has to do with global warming and climate change and um, how important it is for us to start revaluing life and ecosystems. And that anger really comes from love and reminding myself that, um, you know, why we do things and do things together and in public is really because um, because we love each other um, we love making together and life. And so those two things, I think I was reminded that they really go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Well, I hear you saying that. But I also, they go hand in hand and we can't skip over the one to get to the other either, <sighs> right? Like anger is often about what we love. Um, but I think we have to, have the anger show up sometimes too to in order to get to to the love that I think I don't know there's a lot of messages I think in the culture right now that are sort of like let's just all love each other let's not be angry but I think that anger um I don't know there's a lot of juice in anger too yeah I think I mean sometimes you know anger is more immediately powerful I think than love Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm love is a slow build and Mm. anger can get you going. So I think, you know, when I was trying to get up this morning, I think it was anger that got me going. Um, It was probably also caring for the work that has gone into this so far. And Mm. yeah. What's it like as an artist? Because a lot of your pieces are by their nature, if not ephemeral, not permanent. And I'm wondering what is it like to make things 
that at some point you have to let go? Oh, that's a great question. I think that more and more I want to believe that they're permanent. And uh, that was that was the goal with Wetland. You know, Wetland was a commission at first, and it was supposed to be around for um, 45 days. And I was thrilled that we got this grant through Fringe Arts to build the structure and uh, that if I had allocated the funding right, this project could go on for a lot longer. And um, and I think about that with swale, I think. You know, even if we can't keep this floating food forest in public space for a long time, the um, what is left will will we will need to continue to steward. And it might not be always the physical space, but in this case, I would, you know, I would love for it to be in Swale's case. And I would, we keep thinking about, and by we, I mean the team who's been constantly working on it with me for the last um, one to two years. Um, you know, what are the, what will happen if we, can't keep the barge in public space, where will we move the plants and uh, how will those be integrated into public space? So the, the relationship building is the long-term um, goal. And yeah. Well, so for our listeners who might not be familiar yet with, with Swale, can you speak a little bit about what it is and how it came into being? Yeah. So Swale is a, uh, a floating food forest. It's on a barge. It's a 130 by 40 foot barge. And it's, uh, you know, it was built initially to um, be provocative, to challenge um, the public, the laws of public space in New York City. It's really specifically place-based. It um, wouldn't be as necessary in a, in a city where it wasn't illegal to grow or pick food publicly. And in New York, it's specifically illegal because it's so litigious, um, because um, especially public spaces like public parks are are designed to be um, beacons. They're designed to be these beautifully pruned spaces where if enough people were foraging in them, the, the way that they looked would change. And there are a bunch of other reasons, but um, but a lot of people in public service, I learned, and spe- especially the Parks Department, do want to see the um, see parks uses expanded, and they want to see more people stewarding public spaces. And so, learning that um, was part of the reason that I thought there might be a chance to go forth with what I'll call a more radical idea, and it's not, but it's radical for a city where there are are so many uh, rules and regulations about stuff like this. Um, and that's, you know, what if food can be public? And what if, you know, not only are we enhancing um, the public waterways that we are on because we're a barge, but alongside that, we're also saying, um, food should be public and come on to this barge and um, pick food for free, basically. So that's how it started. Mm-hmm. And for, for those who might not know, Food Forest, right, is, is a, a sort of ecosystem where there are trees and there are bushes and there are 
there are different levels of plants in terms of their height and the way that they grow and and many of them produce edibles right and and that that structure over time becomes one that is sustainable and sort of self self-maintaining yeah so i think that's what's really exciting about it is that in a small space you can really you can plant things closer to each other that are companions for one another. So they really help each other grow and they help enrich the soil and, um, and work together. And they really, really, when you come onto a space like swale, it's very novel because you're at once moving with the water and the tides and the wakes from other boats. You feel really connected to the movement of, um, of the earth and, Mm -hmm. and of your neighbors. But at, at the same time, you're, able to see this small, intense ecosystem um, where you can see the bees interacting with the plants and one plant planted next to an, another plant that, you know, is the opposite of industrial farming where, uh, where for so long we have had to sort of rob the soil of its minerals and replace them with chemical fertilizers and with natural fertilizers as well. Um, and that's an entire economic ecosystem that um, is necessary that we don't have to buy into with uh, permaculture-based food forest. And it's a, it's a way to get the most out of the least amount of space. And it's also based in perennial plants. So in theory, you need to um, put less and less human effort into it year after year. There's always going to be some maintenance. But um, what was exciting about proposing a food forest to the parks department was that right now a lot of a lot of their chemical use in parks comes from um, budgetary concerns comes from knowing that we cannot we cannot pay enough uh, people to be maintaining the parks without these chemicals and um, substituting that thinking and saying well actually you won't have to um, in theory you won't have to hire more people to uh, to steward a space where uh, people are stewarding it by picking the foods. So mm-hmm. essentially, it, it works as a as an ecosystem that needs less service. That's one of the things that's so amazing about this project to me is that it it really shows by doing what's possible in a way that you know you could write a lot of policy papers and give them to the parks department and probably nothing would happen, but in seeing it actually up on its feet, it sounds like that really caused some movement and some shifting in people's perspectives of what's possible. Yeah, I think that, so I was able to talk with, I had an an art residency at the Urban Field Station last year, and that's a a parks department and forest service initiative that just started up. And, um, and so I was able to talk with people from the Parks Department about this when it was just launching. And a lot of people said, or at least a few people said, it's a great idea. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, and I think it was, and it, I don't think it would have had there not been lots of other people in different directions saying to, um, saying to the people who would listen in the Parks Department that actually this is, this is a kind of resiliency that a city like New York really needs because there isn't much. Mm-hmm. And because it's coming off of these resiliency plans, the momentum around it was greater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
how was it to work with to work with the city and work with the different departments on this project? Because one of the things that's so interesting is you specifically designed the project to circumvent the laws of New York City. And I'm wondering how the city responded to that and how it was in general to be working with departments, even as what you're doing is in some ways very much in alignment with that with them and in some ways really in direct opposition to them. Yeah, I thought about wild man Steve Brill, um, who was a forager, who is a forager and leads foraging tours in Central Park and was arrested a couple of times, I believe, and then and then the Parks Department hired him to give tours <laughs> as, as a way to soften what he was doing a little bit, I'm sure, but um, but also to embrace it and almost to say, well, you know, you can get, you can give tours, just people can't actually pick the things, but it's great that people um, are starting to learn about or relearn what's edible, or we can share knowledge about what's edible and what's medicinal in these parks. And, um, and so there could have been some forward thinking there. And I think that uh, people are engaged uh, with art in a different way. They're not afraid of it. Uh, It doesn't seem to wield that much power. So it's, it can be a little bit tricky and um, I think that it's, yeah, I don't know. It's a, yeah, you can sort of be radical in a sideways way <laughs> where people don't expect that it's going to have that impact. So they sort of let you in the door. Yeah, I guess I, I think so. And I think that we, like in the United States in general, we probably live in in a place where we all misunderstand arts val- arts value can be so many different things and um, and it can be a source of I mean yeah like you're saying there's a there is a source of power in there because it can make something visible because um, it's it alludes to a possibility but it's not it yet you know mm-hmm. um, it's mm-hmm. not a threat all the time I mean it's not in this piece is not intended to be a threat, of course, but mm-hmm. so that has me. Uh, so I have a question about you, your thoughts on art in general, and you on your website have written a manifesto for nonviolent art, and. The introduction, the sort of opening few lines of that manifesto are in every way, shape, and form, we are at war. A manifesto for nonviolent art proclaims that art and utopian thought can cultivate systemic social change. Art can transform people's perceptions about value, and collective art forms can reframe predominant ideologies. And you go on to speak specifically about five forms of violence, violent economic order, violent political order, educational order, ecological order, and social order. And you call for nonviolence in each of these spheres. Um, and I'm wondering where that, because manifestos, that's a strong word, right? And it's a strong document. You really are calling people forth to, to make art and to live in a certain way. And I'm wondering what brought that forth. Mm. Um, so honestly, I I was um, I was struggling to 
figure out what to do after I had um, done this project where I had bundled almost everything I owned and tried to address it for uh, for its violent each object for its its inherent violences of how how each object was made and where it was made and um, how it was distributed and bought and then potentially you know where it would end up if it didn't end up in this bundle um, and and I kept thinking well personal change doesn't mean social change and I had at the same time come out of a relationship that at the end was was violent in different forms and I was trying to address that I thought well I need to I need to understand what does nonviolence mean and I spent time researching nonviolent movements at that point and so it came from a personal place and it was really connected to uh, what was happening with Black Lives Matter and um, the surfacing of that. It was it was the surfacing of that was at the same time. And I and I wanted to um, I I don't want to say that we should never use tools of violence to fight violence, but when we're using the tools of violence to find common ground or healing or make art then we have nothing, right? So how do we have an education system that's based in the tools of violence? And how do we expect that to be one where, where we can learn uh, about other ways of being? Um, and I think, you know, that's where it started from. And so I thought I, I need to write this down and I need to expand upon these and I need to really start to address and live these and try to um, make my actions meet these words. So for me, it, it was it was based in that. And now I think every day I try to, to live by this. And some of them are, you know, I meet with contradiction. So I mm-hmm. think that's what I've been focusing on for the past while now is um, how do you how do we work with contradiction and mm-hmm. yeah. Can you think of an example of a way that just in your day-to-day life choices come up where you have a decision to make in one direction or the other around violence? Um, I think Every time I go to a store and buy something new, I'm, I'm making that decision. And sometimes I know it's really necessary for me to live like food and I'm not getting it all from the, the floating food forest. Right. Um, so I, yeah, so I know that obviously there's a complicity there and I know that, you know, that while I sit, well, I, contemplate projects while I'm making projects it's not enough and if the real intention is a shift in the dominant culture or it's a or it's a shift in value and um, then I'm never satisfied with this work and I think that that is a constant state of frustration (laughs) that I try to uh, deal with positively and never know if uh if art is really the answer, yet 
the poetry that comes with art seems like sometimes it's the only answer. And I don't know if, I, mm-hmm. if that answered your question. I recently heard um, I recently heard a talk by uh, author Paul Kingsnorth, who actually is speaking in Brooklyn tonight, and he he said something like, "What I wonder what would happen if everyone on the planet was only allowed to speak in poetry for a solid week." Oh my gosh. Every press conference, every UN hearing, like every interaction on the bus could only be in poetry. And I thought, yeah. And I just, it seemed like everything would have to shift in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful question. You were mentioning um, a minute ago your uh, your piece uh, House and Universe, where you uh, there are different aspects I think to this to this piece and that or that project, but one part of it is that you cataloged all of the items that you owned and you you took photographs of them and you put them on a website and with each object. Uh, was a description of its sourcing and it, and the components of it and where they all came from. And then you added those into bundles that became sculptural objects. A lot of them looked kind of like boulders. And just re- exploring that website a little bit, it was amazing to even just looking at a, a compact disc and learning all of the components and all the places on the planet that they came from. You know, I, I have some awareness of where my things come from, but really it's kind of astonishing when you start to get down to the minutia of it. And I'm wondering what it was like when you began to look that closely at the things that you owned. Um, I think that I appreciated each object a lot more and, um, and everything that went into it. So I thought more, more delicately about you know, the water that's used to make the CD uh, to the land that where the chemicals are dumped afterwards because there's almost nowhere else for them to go uh, to how they're being recycled. And I think, I think within that, yeah, you feel, I think I needed to know that uh, to come to terms with the fact that I felt like I was hoarding objects for artwork <laughs> and um, and it was so easy to collect things and it was so easy to, you know in a city where um, where we heavily depend on our garbage system to to throw things away and I know that you know and I grew up right outside of the city and I've seen the garbage go right there so the connection that we can have on an immediate scale and then also learning about the bigger uh, connections that we have to supply chain systems, I think, was important for for me to understand uh, the tools that I think we, like, I I don't feel like I can neglect working with in order to um, get this work to where I want it to be. And what I mean by that is there are lots of tools that ethically we don't want to have to work with. And um, a lot of times what I think about with these projects is how that engagement is necessary for them to 
be in this world. And that contradiction, but also that understanding of, of um, I could talk more about like maybe one material in particular that I've done probably the most research on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been cobalt. And uh, it, it came up because I was doing this military research in cobalt. It turns out is uh, the U.S. military is the largest buyer of cobalt in the world. And we get the majority of it from uh, the Congo right now because it's the cheapest to get it from the Congo. But, but we get it indirectly from China and it gets smelted there. And it's not considered a blood mineral because the military is so dependent on it, yet uh, comes with all, all of the same uh, problems. And the U.S. Mm-hmm. just started to produce it in the country. And everything that it's in is just remarkable, you know, from jet engines to, you know, the, the cobalt blue coloring that we use in painting, mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example of some of those ways that violence sneaks into places that we might not be expecting. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, it's time for us to take a break. Um, my guest today is visual artist Mary Mattingly, founder of Swale, a floating food forest currently docked in the Bronx, New York, providing access to free healthy food and serving as a model for how we might steward our public lands. To learn more about Swale, visit swaleny.org that's s-w-a-l-e-n-y dot o-r-g and to learn more about Mary's other work visit marymattingly.com and we'll be right back Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business and more on demand 24-7 In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is Mary Mattingly, a visual artist who creates sculptural ecosystems in urban spaces. She's founder of a floating food forest on a barge in New York City called Swale, and recently transformed a military trailer into a social space at the Museum of Modern Art's Kalman Center. Um, so I want to actually want to circle back to Swale for a minute to talk a little bit about what you've seen from people when they when they arrive on this barge with food growing on it, which is already a, an unusual thing, and then are told, "Here, you can." harvest food for free uh yeah it's it's pretty great because i most people haven't heard of it and they come across it and they will come on to swale and wonder what they can do there can they walk around uh, sit down and have their lunch or whatever and we say well you the first thing you can do is you can pick anything you want and they say well how much does it cost and we say, well, it's free, and the reaction is usually, what? Um, wow, okay. And I think, you know, sometimes we've had people who know about it, and they come with shopping bags, and they're ready to um, pick a lot of food, and sometimes they find it, and sometimes they don't. And so what we have, what Swale has is always changing, and uh, sometimes people are interested in the foods they're more recognizable and sometimes people come for specific things. Usually people are in awe of the fact that there exists a space like this in a city where everything is monetized and we're so used to it. Um, yeah, and I think that it's a that people are shocked and come away thinking this could be possible. Mm-hmm. I hope. Mm-hmm. It seems like there could be a lot of shocking things about it for people from the food being free to the experience of seeing certain foods growing in the ground for the first time, um, maybe having only ever seen them in a grocery store, to I think you have some pretty um, intricate water filtration systems, right? So just it seems like there's a lot of different pieces that might be completely new to people coming to the project. Yeah, so the so I work with a lot of collaborators, and uh, everyone has a you know, people have such a broad range of skills that that they bring to the project, and we do have this water filtration system where we can draw water from the river into a slow sand filter and a desalinator, and use it on the plants. And um, we have other intricate water systems as well as. Uh, as we started to utilize the water that would collect in the barges hull um, after a rainstorm or something like that, and then filter that. So it's really, uh, it's more of a, it can be more of a closed system. Um, And and one thing that 
I love, I like to tell this story of uh, the time when, you know, we first launched it in the Bronx at Concrete Plant Park in 2016 with Partners Youth Ministries for Peace and Justice. And we didn't, and things weren't ready to be picked and we were there and it was a garden that was just beginning to bloom. And people just started coming on and understanding the idea and bringing plants that were already grown, uh, peppers that were ready to be eaten, and just asking mm. us to plant them in, in the garden. And some of them that weren't going to be ready uh, by the time we left and went to the next stop. And, and people were really excited about uh, their neighbors in Brooklyn getting to eat something that they planted. And uh, that, that, I think, made us realize that uh, there is excitement about stewardship and if we have a different type of access to our public lands there are are a lot of people who want to engage in caring for that space and want to engage in um, picking foods from that space and that's that's when I think it became more mission driven. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering about so swale is I think one of the words I've heard you used to describe it as it's utopic in some way. It's sort of imagining what could be. And uh, I'm curious, in looking at your work over time, over the past maybe 10 to 15 years, that some of your work, you know, like uh, you have a piece in 2004, uh, wearable, uh, wearable, house, wearable homes, mm-hmm. what did I... Is that yeah. wearable yeah. homes? And I know it's ongoing. It wasn't just in 2004, but that that's it seems like there was a, a sort of darkness and sort of dystopia feeling to some of what you were creating at that time. And over time, it seems like the art has moved more in the direction of building the possible that has a, a bit more of a, I don't want to say positive because that's not the right word, but but a, a more of a bent that has to do with imagining something into being that might be something we would actually want. And I don't know if that's an accurate characterization. Is that is that your sense of things? Yeah, I think that, that Swale is also, it's a little bit dystopic still, I think just because of the simple ask. It's, it's so disturbing that we have to, um, make these big actions in order to consider food f- a public service and c- consider food something that's not just bought at a store, uh, that we've come so far from um, being able to pick a fruit off of a tree in in New York or many places in the world, right, that, uh, that these, these things seem like um, big deals, but they're so simple in a way too. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the work that I've done over, you know, when I, when I started making artwork, I was, I'll go back to angry. <laughs> um, I was thinking a lot about, uh, you know, I grew up in a town where the, where the water was undrinkable. Um, it was well water and it was a, an agricultural town in Connecticut. And, People didn't know for a long time. People uh, finally got onto city water, um, probably when I was in 13 or so. And um, then not too long after that, reading about uh, what was happening in, in Bolivia with 
water privatization and and under and reading about climate science and and just thinking that no one was paying attention to this and this all you know how these simple basic human needs are um, just being everything is being privatized and everything is changing in a way that like if we're not watching and if we're not careful it's going to happen around the world and uh, the impossibility of living in in the future sort of became the impossibility of living in the present, even though that wasn't my circumstance. I was um, trying to depict that in artwork in order to kind of present a warning. And then when I think that really became pop culture, that really be, like dystopic films really um, made a huge impact on what um, people recognize as being possible. Uh, it didn't it, it just became really depressing to make that. So I think at first it felt empowering. It felt like if people are not ready to engage with these subjects, we have to we have to just keep putting it out there. And it came from <laughs> thinking about it like that and, and trying to understand how art and photography could have some sort of a power that uh, seemed to to be important to like the future of humanity. <laughs> and I was and, and it was. Like I say it and I'm laughing right now, but um, it's just because it's embarrassing to say out loud. (laughs) (laughs) But I was, but I really, uh, you know, I was thinking a lot about um, propaganda and the work of Edward Bernays and people who, uh, who's, you know, what what photography can do and uh, what photography does to us and what images do to us and trying to understand those tools and how they manipulate us and how we can find our way back from them and to each other um, through those same tools is uh, I think what I was working on for a long time. And then, um, yes, at some point, I guess when I had, when I moved to New York and really caught between the dystopic and the utopic all the time, um, it was important to, try to it, it became a survival became more necessary and um, living out the dystopic futures became um, unrealistic and so I started to work on an idea for a living space that was like more economically viable I thought and also more communal and that was the water pod and I, I proposed it to a bunch of people who thought it was fairly ridiculous idea um, but I, I felt like I had seen it enough in in places that it I could hone it down and make it more realistic and and water pod the idea with that was that if you could create a self-sufficient ecosystem not quite to the level of biosphere 2 or something that's a scientific experiment but something where you can grow food collect rainwater um, have a centralized power source um, and kind of live a, a what I'll call a regular, a regular New York City life, but on the water. Um, could you spend that time that you would spend uh, working your day job? Could you spend it keeping up these living systems, um, and then making artwork or making poetry? And I think that's, you know, that's what I wanted that project to be. And I, I think I'm rambling. Mm-hmm. Um, what 
that that project lasted for a few years from from the beginning to end. Is that right? Um, the planning of it started in 2006, and it was able to launch in public in 2009, and it was only able to exist for six months as a physical space. So what you you mentioned that you had hoped, okay, if we make this, what would happen if we could spend this time caring for this system rather than having to make money to pay for an apartment and things like that? What What were the biggest things that you learned in that six months of tending that place? So I think I, I never thought it, I think when I got involved in making the plans for it and realized what it entailed in order for it to happen in public and in order for it to happen almost for no money and um, relying on barter and relying on relationship building was that the only way, um, I, I didn't think it was going to happen. I, I thought if we ever get to this point where we can build this thing, I have no idea what it will be like. Um, so I think when we finally got the permission to build it, it was quick. It was because the Navy Yard gave us one month exactly to uh, use a pier and build out there. And then we had a lot of these seedlings that were in this new garden and a lot of things that were unfinished when we launched at the South Street Seaport. We had, a um, at the time, the permits for public docks for free allowed you to stay in one space for two weeks and then you had to move to another space. And to get that permit took so long. It's an entire journey. Um, but, but then, yeah, so then we spent, I don't know, eight hours plus a day working on those living systems and it was a lot more work than, than what we were used to at, at our day jobs. Uh, but over time, it got down to two hours, and we tried to quantify everything. So we tried to quantify exactly what foods we were eating, what meals we had, um, how much time we spent on upkeep, how much time we um, spent doing other things and infighting <laughs> being one of them. Uh, it was it was a very public uh, endeavor, and I, I don't think any of us were really ready for it. Uh, but we did it, and... Uh, by the time six months was up, we had gone to 12 public piers. And in order for us to keep the project going for longer, we would have had to recycle some of those piers and go back to them. And at that point, the city said, no, that's that's okay. Um, I think that this project has been going on for long enough. And I think we were also ready to uh, not be living on the water and realized why so many people live on land. <laughs> Sounds like there was a lot of unexpected challenges. Yeah. So a lot of the work that you've made, like water pod and swale, there's a lot of things that you've done that that looking at the finished product, I can imagine that whatever the initial thought was, that it would be very easy to say, okay, that's crazy. That's impossible. That's never going to happen. And you and I were talking briefly before um, we came on air about one of the challenges that I have is is I'll have an idea and sometimes 
I'll just sort of shut it down right off the bat or I'll be hoping that someone's going to give me permission to do it. And I guess I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit about your process in terms of how you move forward on a day-to-day basis in such a way that at the end of periods, it's easy to... um, to have an idea get shut down right at the outset. You think of an idea and you say, oh, that's impossible, or someone else says that's impossible, or you can't quite imagine how it's going to get to the point of actually coming to fruition. And you have managed to have so many of these things actually come to fruition. And I'm wondering if you can speak to um, your process and the the day-to-day what it takes mm-hmm. to to get from the point where there's a seed of an idea to then taking those day-by-day steps to where it becomes swale or it becomes water pod. Yeah, I think that, um, I think about this a lot because I'm so critical of myself and I know we can be critical of ourselves and of others and it's the easiest thing to do. And um, I guess I always try to keep in mind that, gosh, I don't know, um, you know, we're, if, if we are asked, we always want permission. I always want permission. Um, and then I have to s- remind myself that the work that I really want to do, no one's going to, no one who gives permission is going to, to want, right? Um, and I th- I'm not sure if, if that is, if that's really clear what I really want to say, but I think that we don't want to let the criticism stop us. And if we, be, you know, if we believe in what we're doing and mm-hmm. power wants us to criticize ourselves. So um, we follow their lead. So I know that we have to stop doing this. And I think that um, one of the ways that I engage is by trying to remember that I need to love maintenance and that maintenance insists that we slow down and that maintenance can be, because of that, I think it can be a form of resistance. It can be resistance to markets or to our jobs that always need us to produce more and faster. Um, So I, so if we can revalue maintenance for ourselves and then we can revalue, we can try to revalue maintenance for others. Um, I, you know, I think what that does is that allows us to enjoy the ridiculousness of going through a long process uh, that sometimes no one understands. And sometimes it's just barrier after barrier. And there has to be some sort of pleasure in that. And I think it's a sort of sick pleasure, but uh, potentially, but I think that's, that's what engages me in like in the long term. And I think, like you mentioned before, a lot of the projects that I've done have been ephemeral or temporal. And I think that with revaluing maintenance, what I would like to revalue for myself in the long term is that um, following through and that um, and staying with something through the struggle and through the making of something. And then um, the making of something is sometimes easier than the maintenance. And I, yeah, so I think I'm rambling, but my point is that engaging in maintenance and engaging in long-term um, 
ridiculousness and absurdities is sort of what what might be necessary to enjoy for some of these projects and learning the paper trick like learning the permit route was something that I'd, I'd never experienced it was so ridiculous and it was so uh, you know it was supposed to make you back off from doing something like this and then you knew that well you're doing it on the side as you do other things so it's not consuming you but it's in a way its absurdity is enjoyable <laughs> I don't know that's a, I don't yeah. know if I answered your question well no I think you did um, we just have a couple minutes I'm wondering what's what's the edge for you what's next briefly oh well I can tell you that an edge like this is an edge coming on here right now mm-hmm. um, speaking in public especially when I'm not emotionally prepared to um, but I think that an edge is you know what I've been struggling to work on with this military equipment and transforming objects uh, with people and sometimes by myself and what it means to transform something with a with a history that you have stories that were told about an object but um, we never know what the what the full history is and trying to understand the contradictions with and being us uh, you know living in the United States and engaging in the larger economic systems that we can't escape from and um, and trying to find new ones yeah well thank you so much for being here Mary and for bringing your visions of possible futures into the world of form so that we might see what's possible and shift our perspectives and actions accordingly and thanks for coming on in the midst of a very tough week Thank you so much for having me. My guest today has been visual artist Mary Mattingly, founder of Swale, a floating food forest currently docked in the Bronx, New York, providing access to free healthy food and serving as a model for how we might steward our public lands. Next week, Precipice will be back with a follow-up conversation with Max Deschu, founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives and scholar of the Suppressed Histories of Women. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It's been such a pleasure to be with you all today. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to Pathways to Health for Our World with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel.